Welcome to the first episode of Menu Stories. I'm Rebecca Goberstein, and I've spent the last couple years working on a startup, which aimed to simplify the way we communicate about places we love by letting people collect places onto beautiful maps. We found that the places people save tended to be food spots, bars, restaurants, coffee shops, bakeries. You get the idea. It made sense. We eat three times a day. We fall in love over dinner dates. We reunite with old friends over brunch. Some of our most precious memories happen in places that feed us. The startup didn't end up surviving, but the idea for this podcast came out of it, and it was something I couldn't give up on because we got overwhelming interest from some of San Francisco's most popular restaurants and influential food makers. It turns out that there are important stories to be told about the places we love, but perhaps the best people to tell these stories are the chefs, the restaurateurs, the deli shop owners, the people who brought these places to us. And so Menu Stories was created to help these stories get told. This is my first podcast adventure, so bear with me as we embark on this audio journey together. Today's guest and the first guest to ever appear on Menu Stories is Gwyneth Borden, Executive Director of the Golden Gate Restaurant Association, or the GGRA, which puts on major events in San Francisco like SF Restaurant Week and Eat Drink SF. In this interview, Gwyneth shares how important the restaurant community is to the local economy and how the SF restaurant community differs from the food scenes of other influential food cities. We also cover the highly discussed issue of the changing culture of San Francisco in the wake of the latest tech boom, something that Gwyneth has a unique perspective on, given she spent over a decade with IBM before taking this position with the GGRA. This high-level overview of restaurants and our communities is the perfect beginning for menu stories, and I hope you learn as much as I did listening to this interview. Thanks for joining us, Gwyneth. Thank you for having me. So can you tell a little bit about what the Golden Gate Restaurant Association is? A lot of people might not have heard about it, even though they benefit from it every day in San Francisco. Yeah, the Golden Gate Restaurant Association is actually nearly an 80-year-old trade association that represents restaurants. Um, What we do is we're a convener of the community. We do advocacy, we do training, we do marketing, and we do events, all in support to celebrate the restaurant industry. And um, in 80 years, we've done a lot of things. (laughs) Yeah. We originally were founded um, basically to act as the collective bargaining unit for restaurants and Fisherman's Wharf. There was a lot of union racketeering, and GGRA was kind of founded to help deal with that issue. Um, Over the years, we also were, before the garbage contracts came between the municipalities and um, companies, you know, we were the, the, we had negotiated the garbage contract for the restaurant industry. And so uh, being a member of the GGRA that you got great garbage rates. And so over the years, we've evolved um, as the industry's evolved, as the needs have evolved. Um, and now we do a lot of things and cover a lot of ground as an association. But really, our, our goal is to make sure that San Francisco remains a top flight restaurant destination in the world. Um, Um, I know that sounds really ambitious, the world versus just the United States, but we are a major tourist destination. And when people come to San Francisco, one of the top things that they list is the cuisines and the restaurants. So um, it is important that as a global city, we have a very international population that our restaurant industry represents um, the best. So how does the Golden Gate Restaurant Association 
play a role in that tourism piece? Well, twofold. One is making sure that we do have the restaurants have the support that they need to operate here in San Francisco and be successful, whether it's business resources or, or training or even just general marketing. We also work really closely with SF Travel. I actually serve on the board of SF Travel because a big part of the piece is understanding the visitor and how restaurants here can take advantage of the visitors, the visitor types that are coming here. There are lots of data and information that can help, help inform how restaurants might market themselves and present themselves to an international audience. It could be something as simple as maybe accepting a union pay credit card, which is the largest credit card in China. So that's that's part of it. Um, the other part of it is that we do events like uh, San Francisco Restaurant Week, which is a time in January, which is part of California Restaurant Month, that's great for people to come visit restaurants and try new restaurants. They offer prefix menus, um, which is a great way to get people out to places they might not have tried, to explore new neighborhoods. So all of that is kind of really talking about elevating the restaurant scene. We also help with the thought leadership, speaking to the press both locally and nationally about the things that are going on in San Francisco, the trends, the way that we are changing or have changed the food world. I mean, San Francisco has always been a place for local sustainable agriculture. You know, we, it's second hat here in San Francisco and other cities are just starting to uh, get to the farm to table movement. And, you know, if you look at some of the great restaurateurs around this country, many of them started out either in Chez Panis or in Stars or other restaurants here locally. So we, we've been an important player on the national food scene and kind of making sure that we remind people of what we have going on here because we can be a very modest city when it comes to trumpeting the things that we're doing that's different than other places. I don't think a lot of people would say that about San Francisco, but maybe that's very true for the restaurant piece of the community. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. People here are very understated in terms of chefs. I mean, we have people know restaurants very well, but they don't necessarily know restaurant chefs very well. Um, we don't have quite the celebrity chef culture that you have, let's say, in New York or some other big cities, which is kind of an interesting phenomenon. The other thing is everyone wants to be part of the community. They're not trying to stand apart from the community. And when people have gone on to do television and other things, it hasn't always been well received. And I think it's because people feel like it dilutes the authenticity of what San Francisco is about. People just kind of with their head down, cooking good food, using good product. So it's interesting because generally, no, San Francisco, as uh, SF Travel says, is known as the pretty girl in the room <laughs> when it comes to destinations. <laughs> right. <laughs> What do you think the split is between tourism and um, locals dining out? What what do you see drives the economy more in terms of the restaurant industry? I mean, it's got to be the day-to-day residents, really. I mean, I think that there's a combination, right? There's local kind of tourists, which are people from the Outer Bay Area or other parts of California. And those those people are in the city every single day, right? Then there are the international tourists and people who come from really far away who are vacationing here. And obviously, if, if they're staying in a hotel, they're probably dining out quite a bit. But a lot of our restaurants, I mean, restaurants in San Francisco, I mean, it, it is true that we have more restaurants per capita than any other city in the country. And that is because San Franciscans have an insatiable appetite for dining out. Um, The interesting thing is, according to the number of restaurants that we have and the number of seats that we have, theoretically, if every person in San Francisco wanted to go out to dinner at the same time, they could. 
Now, the problem would be that they wouldn't all be going to different restaurants, so it would be actually quite problematic. But it is it is the locals that powers our restaurant industry. Um, the fact that we have so many amazing neighborhood restaurants, it's not just the, the downtown destination restaurants, which are wonderful as well, and locals uh, patronize them, but it's the neighborhood restaurants that, you know, repeat customers come back every single day to see their neighbors and their friends and to have community meetings or um, to get brunch. <laughs> you know, if that's really what keeps our restaurant strong, I mean, the tourism is a very important piece, but it, it really is the loyalty of the locals. What do you think the restaurants prefer to have, the tourists or the locals? I, I think... I mean, I think restaurants want both. I mean, you have to have both. You have to have consistent people. So when it's not tourism season or, you know, the weather is bad, that you have those people who are loyal that come into your restaurant, that the familiar faces um, that you really enjoy. Um, tourists are different. It just depends on where they're from in the world. You know, some of them don't tip very well because of where they come from parts of the world. Um, some of them might not be as exploratory with food. It just depends on um, the the tourists that you get in. So tourists are kind of, there's no monolithic way to kind of define a tourist visitor. So I think that makes it a little more challenging. I think if you were to ask, you know, restaurants, I think the thing that they might like are the the business diners or the expense account diners. Right. <laughs> those are the ones that um, spend a lot of money. So those would be if there was a type of visitor or you know, tourists that you want to identify. I guess the business uh, traveler is one that a lot of restaurants do want to attract as well because they do spend um, good money. And that's obviously very important. The check average of a restaurant is really what drives their ability to do a lot of different things. So um, I think it's a balance. I mean, I think for most people, they like looking in their restaurant and seeing familiar faces. You mentioned San Francisco has a really strong influence on the global restaurant community. One of those pieces is the the training that some chefs receive by starting out at places like Chez Panis. How else do you see the San Francisco restaurant community influencing other restaurant communities around the world and, and which communities do you think get influenced the most? Well, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I think what's really interesting, you see this idea of California cuisine um, in lots of places, whether you're in France or even I think it's in India that there's a San Francisco restaurant. Um, and so uh, people are mimicking what we, you know, coined, which is Californian cuisine, which is kind of the local, you know, fresh ingredient forward um, great produce, um, which is amazing when you think about the fact that so many places are having California cuisine as part of their dynamic. Um, and then you look at places like uh, Tartine Bakery, which are opening up in Tokyo, and the farm-to-table movement, um, uh, slow food, a lot of that, while it might have started in other places, you know, San Francisco was really at the forefront of making that happen. So that's, I think, really exciting. Um, yes, there are chefs now that come from other countries and stage in restaurants in San Francisco and kind of take their techniques uh, to other places, which is also important. But I think what's most significant is our respect for the local ingredients and that, that influence and how it's um, permeated to other places. How big of a role does the restaurant community play to the San Francisco um, and even the, the California state economy? It's it's quite significant. I mean, we know from it's the 2013 um, Industry and Commerce Report, which is done by the city and county of San Francisco, um, that 
the restaurant industry, uh, the taxable sales of $3.7 billion were contributed to the local economy. So we know that um, that's fairly significant. That's about um, almost half of the retail sales just generally here in San Francisco and sort of, of the taxable nature. We have more than 52,000 jobs here. And, you know, throughout the state of California, I can't remember the number of jobs, but it's fairly significant. I mean, the, fa- the service industry is still the fastest growing industry in this country. I mean, restaurants are the one, when you think about it, they're kind of the modern day manufacturing. You take a product from its raw state and bring it to something completely different from the beginning to the end of the process in a restaurant. Um, and so it can never be outsourced. It will always be a need in a local community for restaurants. Um, restaurants are also the places that you know build new communities. When, when you think about neighborhoods that are flourishing in Oakland or even in San Francisco, it was often pioneering restaurants that went to those neighborhoods. Um, there was a study done by Sasaki Associates, which is a planning firm out of Boston, and they found that when they surveyed people in San Francisco and a bunch of other cities, um, the number one reason that they would leave their neighborhood is for a restaurant. So it's really interesting the role that restaurants play in kind of place making and community making. Um, they're also the way they're the place where people convene with their neighbors, they meet their neighbors, and they're kind of transformed to a place where they're satiated, which is actually um, something that's very unique about a restaurant experience. They comfort you, sometimes remind you of home, um, your favorite dishes that you love. So that's you know another significant role. The other thing is it's the place where people go to celebrate anniversaries and birthdays, you know, have their child's fundraiser. You know, the thing about the child's fundraiser, and I don't even talk enough about this, is that so many restaurants, they give gift certificates, they donate food, they host events, or they have fundraising for specific local causes. And, you know, restaurants, they may not be the largest financial contributor to a lot of charitable causes, but they're a major factor. You know, it's quite significant. Um, that footprint. And when I think about where people host fundraisers of all types, you know, I'd say overwhelmingly people are hosting them in restaurants. Um, People often live in small spaces in San Francisco, which is very common in most cities. And so restaurants are kind of where the the places where people live their lives. I mean, if you think about it, 52,000 jobs in San Francisco, I think there's about 750 or 800,000 people that live here. Yeah. That's a pretty significant percentage of the population that is employed by the restaurant industry here. The number's probably higher because that was from 2013. <laughs> right. And you mean the number of people employed? Yeah. Right. And I think it's also really interesting to point out that restaurants actually attract uh, visitors and diners from outside the neighborhood. I know that in some cities, like in Detroit, for example, when there's an attraction that um, brings in outsiders, so to speak, that aren't living in that neighborhood, the crime rate even tends to go down. And there's sometimes a backlash to that or sort of a um, a feeling of bitterness or um, sort of resistance to change or sort of skepticism around the kinds of people that are being um, brought into the neighborhood that don't really belong there by you know according to the locals or the residents or which is probably a very valid sentiment but it sounds like there are some really positive aspects to that too as what you mentioned yeah i think what's interesting is that if you go to um, any inner city neighborhood that um doesn't have a lot of uh, you know choices typically there are food deserts um, they don't have great grocery stores, or if they have stores, they're corner stores with no fresh produce. 
Um, they don't have um, usually great restaurants. They have mostly fast food. Um, a lot of those neighborhoods are dying to have, you know, better food options, be they restaurants, be they grocery stores. They're dying to have other amenities. It could be a bookstore. It could be a gym. You know, other things that um, most neighborhoods have. They, they want their neighborhoods to be walkable and they want them to be safe as well. Um, obviously, the big issue is safety, right? And I think, you know, when people start talking about the issue of gentrification, which um, is what most people want in the short term, not in the long term, right? People want a neighborhood to get better. Even the people who live in that neighborhood, they want to see people taking care of their homes. They want to see new businesses that come in. Obviously, they hope that those businesses are at the price point that they're affordable to them and that um, and that's something that when a restaurant is looking to locate a new neighborhood, they ought to be very mindful of um, are they staying affordable enough that the locals and the people who live there can take advantage as well as others who might be attracted to come to to that restaurant. And I do think that that is kind of a responsibility I think of when you're a pioneering restaurateur. But I find more often than not that restaurants are very, very mindful of that and they keep their prices very affordable. Um, Sometimes though, when things look shiny and new, um, there's a perception that the cost is higher than it actually is. Um, I also think that there's a lot of misnomers about food and what's considered inexpensive and expensive. Um, Things like, you know, fast food sometimes that market very low price points. If you actually add up how much money you're spending, it's sometimes the same as a, as a uh, as going to the grocery store or as going to a restaurant of another type. So I think it's um, the issue of gentrification is a challenging one. I think, you know, as I said, most people in those neighborhoods that are experiencing high crime um, and blight want new changes to come to their neighborhood. It's that balance of, you know, people as business owners realizing their responsibility to help prop up and be part of the neighborhood. And I think that's more often than not what actually happens. I mean, that's what makes the neighborhood stronger. Of course, the challenge of cheaper rents in a place like San Francisco or even in Oakland um, will influence that when people feel more comfortable in a neighborhood, they might be willing to locate there. Um, and, the, and the pattern of gentrification always starts with artists, actually. People always talk about um, you know the hipsters, but it actually starts with <laughs> artists because artists are the ones that are looking for the, the an expensive studio space or places to live most often and are usually... Um, more willing to go into neighborhoods that are, say, less tested um, by outsiders. And then then the others come. But um, there isn't a silver bullet or solution from how you stop that. I think the, the, the key is as a restaurateur or any sort of business owner is just really being mindful of your role in the community and how you can play part in building that community. Do you think that artists tend to be the first ones to sort of discover these new blossoming neighborhoods with some new potential and an interesting shift that's happening and then the restaurants follow and then the rest of the community or how do you you know it's it's a combination i mean for example in general people are if you're a young restaurateur you don't have a whole lot of money um you're looking for a place where it's cheap rent right i mean that's i mean the driving factor as to why people go to places is cheap rent and you know you want to be in a particular city or you know in san francisco or you're in oakland um, and you go where you can find a space that kind of meets what you're looking for. It has a certain size. It has a certain feel. Um, it's hopefully low on the planning department <laughs> needs of how many permits and things that you need to get to make it happen. And so all of those 
those factors come into play. I mean, it really is about cheap rent and hoping that the food product that you're going to offer will be good enough that the neighbors as well as others will come there. What do you think the biggest challenge is for the restaurant community in San Francisco? You know, I think it's rising costs. I mean, what's amazing about San Francisco is we're an incredibly progressive city, which means we really look out for workers and employees. Um, we have, you know, we have the first of its kind local health care ordinance. We were the, one of the first to have a paid sick leave ordinance. We have a minimum wage that's actually currently going up and will continue until it hits $15 by 2018. Um, so that's all um really exciting on the one hand because it's an expensive place to live the bay area and making it more affordable and making sure people are taken care of is important um, but it's a challenge because restaurants are in a tight margin business and nationally the the average is four to six percent is the profit margin um, when costs increase dramatically particularly in a short period of time there's not a lot of ways for restaurants to absorb those costs um, so when when labor costs go up um, restaurants have to look at how they balance that. Um, you can't really cut staff too significantly because service is such a big part of the restaurant experience. And if you have poor service, people will not be willing to come back to your restaurant. Then you have the fact that when the economy is booming, you know, real estate prices are high. Most restaurateurs don't own their space. They are on the rental market just like everyone else. And there's no commercial rent control. So if you've had a space you've been in for 10 years and you built it out to your specifications and your landlord decides to raise your rent 20 or 25% or sometimes more, you don't have a lot of choices. It's not like you can just pack up and move your restaurant down the street. Um, so that also influences um, the industry. The third component is we're in a drought and food costs have gone up. Um, because of the drought, there were less crops available this year. There was more competition for the few crops that there were. Um, some things weren't even planted because of the, the water issues. And so that drives up the food costs. So you've got food costs rising, you have rent rising, and then you have labor costs rising. And so it makes it very difficult because restaurateurs want to have food that's accessible. They don't want it to be too expensive. They do want people of all income levels to be able to enjoy their, their experience. Um, but the reality is when you have those high costs, you, you have to price yourself uh, in a position that at least you break even. And you know, obviously you're in business to profit a little bit because they're not nonprofit. So um, that is the challenge that restaurants have. Right now, you're seeing restaurants experiment with new pricing models. Some are doing all-inclusive pricing where they're backing in the sales tax and the tip. So um, their prices, when you look at the menu, seem high. But when you actually, if you were to calculate what it would typically cost with tax and gratuity, it's probably about the same. Um, there are some places that have, have added surcharges that maybe didn't have surcharges before. There are some places that have increased surcharges. Some people are increasing surcharges as well as their prices. Some people are adding flat service charges. Um, there's a whole uh, different uh, variety of measures that people are undertaking right now. But the issue of, of rising labor costs is it's a, a big one because restaurants compete with the fact that you can you don't have to go out. It's a totally optional thing. You can cook at home. And you know that is the reality of being in the restaurant business that what you're providing for someone maybe they can't quite provide it at the same level but they can still feed themselves. Yeah, that's a really interesting challenge. Um there's there are more and more 
uh, kind of startups and opportunities that are trying to encourage or make it easier for people to dine at home. How do you think the restaurant community can coexist with that? Well, I mean, I think that um, for the most part, where it's a very much, I mean, we consider them part of our community. Some of those food delivery services are our members of our association. Um, what's been really amazing is that what a lot of those delivery services have found is that their greatest partnerships in terms of when they're really driving sales of their product is when they partner with a local restaurant chef. So people still want to have that um, restaurant culinary experience and while they're trying to replicate it at home, it still is important to them. So I think that in some ways it can be an additional way for restaurants to kind of promote themselves or maybe even um, enhance their own revenue streams with reaching new audiences. Um, But I don't think it's actually competition in the sense that, you know, while people might want to do that some nights, I don't think people want to do that every night. Um, so it seems like it's a very nice symbiotic relationship, both where restaurants can experiment through participating in, in those programs with guest chef nights. And on the other hand, it just provides an alternative for someone who wants something delivered inexpensively. That's a really interesting perspective. I think um, I think that makes a lot of sense that they're not adversarial, but they actually can work together well. And it's good to hear that that's kind of what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, if you want a a delivered, you know, duck breast dinner, you know, it's it's still not going to be quite what you would get if you went to the restaurant, right? And and part of that is an experience. And that's something you can't you don't get at your home, right? So if you need to eat quickly and you're just trying to, you know, have dinner, you know, that's why deliveries always existed of other types, right? People get delivery from their local Chinese and Thai and other restaurants. And those are really important um, aspects of the of the community as well. Right. That ambiance is not something that's easy to replicate at <laughs> home, especially in the San Francisco rental market right now. Um, what are some of the things that the Golden Gate Restaurant Association does or has done that you're most proud of? We have a big event called Eat Drink SF. It was originally called SF Chefs when it was founded in 2009. And the whole idea was to create a celebration for San Francisco chefs. At the time, there were no other um, culinary festivals of its type in San Francisco, and um, a lot of other major cities do have culinary festivals. And it was a real way to kind of bring the chefs and the industry um, to the masses, so to speak. Um, There are, as I mentioned, a lot of restaurants in San Francisco, and you can't hit them all, but um, through our event, a lot of people were able to experience bites from various restaurants that they may have never tried, and hopefully it encourages them to try other restaurants. Um, I think it really showcases what we have here in terms of the culinary talent and the, the diversity of food types. And so Eat Drink SF is one of the highlights of one of the great things that we do. Another thing that I'm really proud of is that we have a scholarship foundation. It's been around since 1968, um, and we give scholarships to students pursuing careers in the culinary arts. And I think that's so critical right now. We're facing a shortage in the industry, and it's not just here in San Francisco, but in New York and some other major cities especially. Um, and anything that we can do to support uh, students to go into the culinary arts, um, now more than ever, people are dining out. Uh, there was a this year for the first time, I think it was the month of January, that for the very first time people spent more money on dining out than they did actually on groceries. So, you know, we are in a in a time where everyone's infatuated restaurants. I mean, not only are there a million shows on the Food Network, but now more than ever people are spotlighting and thinking about restaurants and 
diverse culinary experiences. And so how can we help support that industry staying strong in San Francisco, which is a very expensive place to live? The best way we can do that is by supporting people who want to go into the industry. And so our scholarship foundation is something I'm super proud of. Um, We also do a lot of work with City College of San Francisco and other nonprofits that do training in the culinary space. Um, Some of these organizations help people who may have been in different uh, down on their luck at different times in their lives and who are now through these training programs able to be successfully working in the culinary industry and that's so important. I mean I think what people don't think about when when they're thinking about a restaurant is that we employ people of all ethnic backgrounds and of all socioeconomic levels. You don't even have to know how to read to work in a restaurant. You just have to know how to work hard. And so restaurants are really the industry of opportunity because we employ, as I said, anyone, regardless of their skill level, if they are willing to work hard. Um, Restaurants are also the way that when immigrants move to a new country, that they are able to make a living for themselves and their family, and they can share a piece of where they came from with the new place that they land in. So, I mean, restaurants are actually, you know, really exciting when you think about the role that we play, and our support of making that happen is what I am most proud of. That's great. What what do you think is driving the rise in dining out? You know, it's, there's more disposable income now more than ever um, in this country. I mean, while there are a lot of people who are not necessarily experiencing um, the economic gains that we had in the past, I think also patterns of human behavior. It used to be that families you know, planned. I know when I was a kid, I could tell you every night of the week what we were going to have for dinner pretty much because my mom had a meal plan. She did a big (laughs) shop, you know, once a week to buy all the groceries. And that's how it was. And there was an organization out of Washington, D.C. called Street Sense, which is like a planning commercial real estate firm. And they were, they did a lot of research looking on the the best commercial corridors in the world, um, as well as looking at United States behavior in terms of, of eating. And what they found was that 80% of Americans decide what they're having for dinner after 4 p.m. on a given day. And that's a big change. Um, And if you're not thinking until 4 p.m. what you're going to have for dinner, you're probably not going to make anything, (laughs) especially if you're coming from work. And there's now the rise of prepared food in grocery stores, in the Walgreens, in the CVS. I mean, pretty much everywhere has prepared food now. And so people are become more and more accustomed to kind of grab and go or dining out. If they're not gonna, if you're gonna grab and go, maybe I'll just go out instead. So I think that that is that's fueled the change. Also, there's a lot of research that says in terms of millennials, which are, are younger diners, that they're very experience driven, and so dining out obviously it provides an experience which is different than eating at home. I also think that it's changed in terms of the novelty. Right, food is everywhere. It's so pervasive in our culture. It used to be you dined out only for special occasions. Now people dine out, you know, every single day. That's how they get their food. Um, and in a city where restaurants are dime a dozen, in some cases it's cheaper to dine out than it is to buy groceries and cook. It certainly saves you a lot of time. Definitely. And then you don't have to face the 5 p.m. grocery store rush, which is never fun in San Francisco, especially. <laughs> or the cleanup, right? The cleanup that comes with when you decide to make, you know. <laughs> no kidding. That's your, never fun. <laughs> your big culinary adventure, and then you've realized you've used every pan in your, your, right. your apartment. Yeah, and that's always the best part of dining out. How long have you been in this industry, and, and what got you into this? So this has actually been an amazing career transition. 
I um, have only been in the industry about a year, year and some months. I, I took this job officially January of 2014. Prior, I worked for IBM for 10 years. Wow. So I had a totally different career path. And, um, but my passion was always food. Uh, my grandparents were farmers. So I grew up um, spending time on their farm with fresh produce. My Here uncle in was California? Sorry. in Maryland, actually. Oh, okay. And um, my uncle is still a big hunter and fisherman. And so we actually had a whole second uh, freezer in our house of all the fresh caught um, and shot <laughs> food <laughs> that my uncle provided for us. So food was always a very important part of my life. And my grandmother was an absolutely amazing cook. And she raised my dad, one of nine sons on a farm. So I grew up having really, really good food. Um, my parents even had a little garden in our little suburban neighborhood as well. And so food was always kind of central as, as part of my life. Um, when I got old enough to drive a car and had some money from working, I spent all my disposable income on dining out. <laughs> uh, let's just say my dining choices have changed quite a bit since those days. But um, always for me, restaurants were captivating and places where I wanted to spend my time. My parents, who always, who never dined out, I mean, very rarely dined out, could not even understand why I wanted to spend all this money on restaurants. But it always was my, it was always the thing that I, I like to do. And, you know, whenever I travel anywhere in the world, the first thing I do is figure out where I'm dining based upon where I'm planning to go. And so I do all the research and I book all the restaurant reservations. So that's always been kind of my my thing. Then on top of that, on social media, when I first, when Foursquare first launched, for example, I used to check in everywhere. And I checked in so often at restaurants. I remember that someone once wrote, wrote on my Facebook page, like, do you ever dine at home? And then I felt really embarrassed <laughs> <laughs> because the answer is no. Um, so it was just, it was one of those things that it was an industry that I always loved and was passionate about. You know, I spent all my time reading food blogs and food magazines. And then I also like... In my spare time, I will admit, I even watch the Food Networks and food-related shows. And so for me, it's just always been about food. And when I was contemplating that I wanted to leave working in tech, it was always, I knew I wanted to do something in hospitality. Um, and it actually was a like one of the like kind of life-changing moments. I went to, um, I spent five weeks in Europe in 2012. And I spent the first two weeks with girlfriends and the last three weeks with my fiance. And everyone let me plan the itinerary. And all I did was plan my way to eat and drink through um, France, and Italy, and Germany. And I just thought, this is what I want to be doing. This is how I want to spend my life. Um, so when I heard about the opportunity to to be the executive director of the Golden Gate Restaurant Association, at first I thought, oh, gosh, you know, they would never consider me. I don't have the the background in the industry. And a friend who is an attorney who represents a lot of restaurants and has for many years said, no, this is the perfect job for you. And she couldn't have been more right. That's a great story. <laughs> you know, I think it's also interesting that you come from tech because there's a lot of um, conversation these days, especially in San Francisco, around the tech community and what it's doing to the culture in San Francisco in a negative way. I see both sides of that, obviously, as somebody in tech and somebody who didn't used to be in tech. How do you see that relationship and what do you think are sort of the fair points and challenges and what do you see are the positive and the opportunities that the tech boom, as we're calling it, is bringing to San Francisco right now? 
Well, I mean, I think it's it's interesting um, what tech has brought is a lot of jobs. The city is booming again. You know, restaurants are full. Many of them are. That's attributed to the economic activity that's been generated around the tech companies. It's sometimes true because of the tech workers as well. Um, a lot of people in the tech industry are also investing in restaurants. So, you know, when you're starting your first restaurant, it's very hard to get a bank loan. But, you know, getting individual investors, which often are tech investors, has been a really popular way that a lot of new restaurants have been able to open. It's hard. Rest- tech com- companies are coming up with all these new solutions to solve restaurant problems. The challenge um, to that is that most restaurants, the only thing that they need are people in seats. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's period into story. And, you know, if your technology is not getting people into seats, <laughs> then mm-hmm. it's not probably that useful. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting because the tech industry is looking at lots of ways to kind of revolutionize restaurants. And while there are some young restaurateurs that are willing to try some of these new solutions, it's a general matter. Many restaurateurs find it very frustrating and it takes up a lot of their time. Restaurateurs are not necessarily tech savvy. <laughs> they, most of them did not come from tech. Right. So figuring out how to adopt new technologies into their restaurant is often challenging and, and not seamless. So that's kind of a difficult thing. And so restaurateurs are trying to determine whether you know these solutions are helping their revenue stream or basically, you know, taking a cut of their profit margin. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the, the challenge on that end. On the investment end, you know, we had the highly very publicized Hopper Ramen incident where, um, you know, there was a tech investor with a restaurateur and I'm not going to weigh into what what happened or what didn't happen. But I think that, that the appearance of the entire situation is part of a larger concern that people have about the tech industry understanding the restaurant industry and whether or not whether or not it's necessarily a good thing that they're investing and whether that they understand the difference. And so that is kind of an interesting thing that's come into play. The other interesting challenge with tech is that they all have their own chefs in their own kitchens. So there are thousands of employees that are not going out to lunch every single day that all these restaurants could be benefiting from. And then on the other side, in a place where the labor market's very tight, they're also stealing the talent from a lot of restaurants. Um, there are a lot of this, all the chefs that are in these tech companies typically have come from the restaurant industry, have worked in restaurants previously. But now they can work at a tech company, which is you know very well compensated and have better hours than your typical restaurant hours. So there are all those there, those tensions. But at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of innovation that San Francisco is seeing because of the tech industry. And so with everything, there's there's the goods and there's the bad. And um, I think that it's an exciting time. I think it's a challenging time sometimes. I think for the tech industry. Whenever you're in startup mode, and it's true in a restaurant too, you're very kind of insular and like very much focused on yourself. And so I think that getting to that phase where companies mature and are focused more outward is where there's an opportunity for us to to better partner and to better see a way that tech can do more to support the overall industry and community at large. Well, Gwyneth, thank you so much for your time. I think what you shared was really eye-opening. There are just so many amazing things that the San Francisco restaurant community brings. I think it's just a really special opportunity to get to see some of the backstory and some of the larger perspective of how that exists in the environment here. So thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. 
That was a lot of amazing information. As Gwyneth mentioned, the American restaurant industry is a storied way for new immigrants to find a foothold in their new country, where hard work and dedication can really pay off. On the next episode of Menu Stories, we'll hear a very real example of how this can happen when Chef Gonzalo Guzman from Nopalito shares his journey that took him from dishwasher to head chef at one of San Francisco's most celebrated Mexican dining experiences. Make sure to subscribe to Menu Stories so you can hear the story for yourself. Until next time, happy eating. Happy eating.